Good morning and greetings to each of you this morning in Jesus' name. Thank you, Gordon, for that song. I especially needed that last line. I don't know if you caught the message in that last line, but it said, Be calm in thy soul, each thought and each motive beneath His control. And then it says, Thus led by His Spirit. So may our look into the Word of God this morning be led by the Spirit of God. May He have control in our service this morning. So we've been looking through the book of First Peter. And so if you want to turn there this morning, that's where we're going to continue to continue to look. We finished up on chapter 3, verse 18, three weeks ago. And since I started this study, I've been concerned about some of the verses in this passage. And that's part of the reason why I asked you to pray three weeks ago for me, because as I studied this, I wasn't sure. But God was faithful, and He gave me something to share on those difficult passages. And so we continue to look to Him this morning. I'm going to read beginning at verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For, G- for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also He went and preached unto spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the longsuffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereinto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. Forasmuch then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein we think it strange that, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Well, I finished up the last message and we've been looking as Peter is going through this book, he's looked at the issue of suffering and he's talked about Christ's example and how he responded to suffering and then how that relates to our experience and how that relates to our experience in relation to other people of the world. And I said at the end of the last message that I saw a shift in verse 18 here. 
And that shift is from Christ suffering being compared to um, our relationship with the people of this world to our suffering in relation to the evil of this world. In other words, a shift from the, the place of ambassador to the place of soldier. So there's we're changing thought here. And that's why I chose verse 18 as a, as a stopping point last Sunday because I wanted to, to redirect our thoughts in the message this morning to that of the suffering of Christ and His death in relation to us as soldiers for the kingdom of God. And what I want to focus on is the last part of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And so it's saying that Christ was put to death in the flesh. His body was killed, but He was quickened or made alive by the Spirit, His resurrection. And by that, then in verse 18, it says, by which also He went and preached unto spirits in prison. And so, Christ's suffering and death opened a way for Him to operate in a different level in the spiritual realm. Or to do something that was different than what He'd been doing before. Now in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says something about Paul. He says that Paul wrote things hard to be understood. And Peter forgot to mention the things that he wrote that were hard to understand. Like verse 19. <laughs> but one thing that we can see from that passage is that that Christ's death brought a realm of proclamation to these spirits. So, His death opened up a new avenue or realm of proclamation. One commentator said that this text is bristling with questions. I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, way to put it. Um, but there's a lot of different thought about what verse 19 means, what it's talking about. And as I pondered this, I prayed about this passage this morning, I hope that we can pull some practical things from this passage, from this portion of the passage. I'm not intending this morning to tell you what this passage means. But I think there are some questions that surface commonly in relation to this passage. And I'd like to consider some of those things this morning. I want us to look again at verse 19. And the first part of verse 20, and then also verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. In verse 19 it says that by the Spirit, in verse 18, by which also He went and preached in the Spirit to the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. 
So there it's saying that he went and preached unto spirits in prison, and then it identifies um, them as disobedient spirits, and it re reflects back to the days of Noah in relation to when Noah was preparing the ark. So now let's go to chapter 4, verse 5. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So what's that talking about? Well, in... I'd like to turn now to 2 Peter. I mentioned chapter 3. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. An account of the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom written unto him, hath given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now I read that passage because Peter is pointing out the danger of, of, of twisting something in a passage that into being something that's not there. He's saying that, that if we do that, if we take a passage and we twist it, and turn it into something that's not there, that can take us down a road that'll destroy our faith. That can destroy our faith. And some of the questions that I hear pretty commonly on the billboard line are, you know, somebody will call in, they'll say, well, you know, what about the people that never heard your gospel? What, what about those people? What happened to them? Is everybody that never heard the gospel just going to hell? You know, they would have chosen the gospel and they, they do it in a skeptical and cynical way. And they challenge God on the basis of that. What about the people who perished in the flood and other calamities since? What happened to those people? Did they just all go to hell and... They wouldn't have gone otherwise if they'd have heard the Gospel. And you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. And here's the big question that I see coming up in this. Or maybe I should say that came up to me, has come up to me as I've looked at this passage. Was God giving these people, these spirits in prison, another chance here in verse 19? Is that what God was doing? Well, I don't know for sure. But there are things that I do know in relation to those questions. In chapter 4, verse 5, the all knowing God is the judge of his creation. 
who will give account to him who is ready to judge the quick and the dead. God is going to judge His creation. There is only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. We know that. All men will give account to God. Romans 14.12 So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's something we know. We know that accountability is tied at some level to our knowledge. Jesus said in Luke 12.48 For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. We know that we will give a final account after we die. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. We know that we're to be actively involved in showing lost humanity the way to God. And I didn't write down a text for that. There's plenty of them. Those are things that we know. So why am, I, why am I making that point? You see, in the end, there are things that we know, yes. But we cannot completely see things from God's perspective. And we'll never be able to fully grasp everything in His plan. And I was talking to somebody this week and they were, a, were an unbeliever and they were talking about you know, that, that it seems strange that God would use this method of the Gospel to, as a way to reveal himself to the world, because it's, you know, it's not just something that compels people in the sense that people have to believe. And I used an illustration that I've heard before with him. I said, let's just imagine that there was a big circle. And that big circle contained all of knowledge. So within that circle was everything that could be known. In other words, what God knows. Everything that could be known. And then, let's imagine that I'm going to take, I'm going to make that into a pie graph, and I'm going to fill in the amount that I know out of that. And I told him it would take a really big circle and a really fine point pen. Because our perspective is so limited in relation to God. And yet God has revealed some things to us. And you see, you don't have to understand everything about the war, everything that's happening in the war to be a good soldier in the battle you're fighting today. What all is God saying here? I don't have the answer to that. But God knows. What about those people of Noah's day? I don't have all the answers to that. But God knows. I thought about a story I heard once about a funeral 
for a man who committed suicide. And the preacher stood up and he said, I know where this soul is. And the room got deathly quiet. And he said, He's in, it's in the hands of a just God who makes no mistakes. And that's where the hands, that, that's the hands that every soul is in. The hands of a just God who makes no mistakes. And that's something that we know and can be sure of. That we can testify to. Moving on now into the illustration that Peter picks up on here in verse 20. It says, which sometimes were disobedient, and once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, now he's, he's shifting this thought. He's talking about those disobedient souls, but now he's, he's shifting and focusing on Noah's experience out of that. And... He says that Noah was saved by water. And then he compares that salvation that Noah experienced to baptism. And in since the time of Cain, so Cain killed his brother Abel. And why did he kill his, his brother? Because his brother's works were righteous and his were wicked. And so since the time of Cain and Abel, wickedness has sought to destroy righteousness. And Noah, as a just man, would have lived in an environment where the earth was filled with violence. The Bible doesn't really talk about this, but Noah's life was likely in danger as a result of his righteous living. Or, it could have been, had the flood not happened, that righteousness would have been completely extinguished. The wicked people would have killed off all the righteous people. And so there was a, there's a sense in which the water eliminated that danger, that threat in Noah's life. But there's more to it than that. Because it wasn't the water itself that saved them. They were carried by the ark through the water, beyond the water, beyond the danger, beyond the judgment of God. So it was the steps of obedience that they took that carried them beyond the water. And there's a similar concept 
in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, where it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what happened in the sea? Well, they crossed over on dry land, but the Egyptians were drowned. And what happened there was that the threat of bondage from the Egyptians was eliminated by the destruction of Pharaoh's army. And I was, brother and I were talking about baptism and mode of baptism and stuff. And we talked about these verses and I asked him if it was the Egyptians that were baptized. And you see, they went, they were immersed. Now that's not a, that's just for you to think about. But uh, what I want us to focus on is that the threat of bondage was eliminated by this baptism. And then in verse 21 it says, in the same way baptism saves us. And then concludes that thought with, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's turn now to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that as many as of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized unto His death? Wherefore, we are buried with Him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised from, up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul is comparing baptism here to a burial. But do you see the parallel there between that and the end of verse 18 in the text of 1 Peter? Where it says, We're buried unto death. Like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in newness of life. And back there in 1 Peter, I should have left my finger in that spot. The end of verse 18, talking about Christ, it says, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And so it's there's a comparison there. Baptism is compared to what happened to Christ when He was put to death in the flesh and was quickened by the Spirit, was made alive. And baptism is emblematic of the spiritual change that happens when we surrender our lives to Christ. When we die to who we are. Die to our flesh life and receive spiritual life. And that death that has to happen as a result of sin then we receive spiritual life and that frees our conscience. The like, fig 
the like figure, baptism now saves you, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God as a result of the fact that we must die. Whoso wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Our consciences are freed by the resurrection of Christ. By the life of the Spirit that comes in and quickens us. And then the act of baptism, the actual water baptism, going through that process is a public declaration of the change of allegiance that happens when we're saved. When we go from being part of the kingdom of darkness to being part of the kingdom of light, and we're making a public declaration of that with water baptism. You see, salvation is an ongoing process. And let's think back about Noah. If Noah hadn't been the, built the ark, then there would have been nothing to get on when the water came. But if he built the ark, but didn't get on, he still would have drowned in the flood. So it took ongoing steps of obedience. And baptism is an act of obedience that is critical to our salvation process and our confidence in a spiritual battle, in a spiritual realm. We have chosen a side. I was talking with somebody about baptism recently and... Uh, They were asking, you know, is baptism necessary for salvation? And I thought about that some sense. And thinking about this illustration of Noah. And we do not believe that the act of baptism saves you. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Which, which brings about a, a spiritual change that happens within us. But I don't believe we should talk about or think about salvation without baptism. In other words, it's, it's something when you are changed, when you go through that spiritual change, then baptism should follow. It should be an act of obedience. It should be a step like Noah took to get on the ark to build the ark, to get on the ark. Those are steps of obedience that need to follow in that ongoing process of salvation from sin. Because that's what salvation is. Ultimately, it's salvation from sin. So we're being saved from sin. And this, Peter is talking about here, this, this thing of baptism is the entrance into being a soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus in verse 22. He said, "Is going into heaven, who is going into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. And so there he's saying that this battle has already been won. We're placing ourselves through, through baptism. We're entering the winning side. We're engaging in the winning side. And that's the context or that takes us into chapter 4. 
For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. So now he's going back to the illustration of Christ's suffering. They say Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. And salvation, I'll remind you, I just mentioned it a minute ago, is salvation from sin. And so there's a tie here between suffering and being made free from sin. But to arm ourselves is to be prepared and to put on armor. And it's saying to arm ourselves with a mind or a state of mind. And, you know, for, a, for soldiers to go into the army, there needs to be a mental preparation for them to go into battle. And that's why boot, boot camp is not easy. Boot camp is difficult. And the more intense operations that the soldier is going to be engaged in, the more intense the training. The Navy SEALs are one of the most elite groups in the Army. And they go through some absolutely intense training to the point that some of them kind of fall apart mentally because they can't withstand the training. But that's how intense the battle is going to be for them. And so there has to be a, a training process. And it's saying in this verse, and, and I think this, is, this verse just stood out to me a couple years ago and just hit me right between the eyes. We should have a mindset of suffering. That's what this verse is saying. Arm yourself with that same mind. Be prepared with the mind that I'm going to suffer as a Christian. That's your thought process. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the armor of God. The helmet is the helmet of salvation. The helmet goes on the head. And it's critical that we be assured of our salvation. That's critical to this battle. But it's also critical to the battle that we understand that the process of salvation that we're going through so we're not just talk, calling salvation a one-time event where I put on the helmet. We're calling it an ongoing application. or keeping the helmet on. Protecting our minds is a realization that I'm going to suffer as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's part of the package. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5-8. through eight. Let this mind be in you. So it's saying that that should be the same mind. This is the mind that you need. So pay attention. This is the mind that you need to have. 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ's mind was that his obedience was going to take him to death. He knew that. As he went through his ministry, he knew that he was going to suffer. But he humbled himself and continued on that journey of obedience that took him to the cross, knowing he was going to suffer. Is that our mindset? <clears throat> A mindset that's preparing us for spiritual victory. You see, because this is talking about a soldier. A follower of Jesus. Someone who's building His kingdom. Is that the way we think about the Christian experience? And then he goes on in this verse to say, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. See, that's victory, right? Romans 8, 5, and 6 say, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the, of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So remember, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We need to make that our mindset. To take up our cross daily. And the cross is an instrument of death to the flesh. It was for Christ. And that's what it's meant to be for us. Is that the way we think about the Christian life? Or has the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel influenced us more than we think it has? Do we still have ties to the Old Testament teachings that if you follow me, you will be physically blessed and your physical enemies will go away or be conquered. And you see, that's part of where that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel comes from. It comes from a flat Bible and Old Testament theology instead of New Testament theology of suffering and death to my flesh. So why do we give in to sin? Well, if sin is flesh-oriented, then we give in because we're not willing to counter the flesh. And you see, suffering is counter to the flesh. We don't want to suffer. Our flesh does not want to suffer. So our willingness to suffer will determine our ability to overcome sin. That will be part of that package 
We must be willing to overcome sin. We must be willing to suffer in our flesh. Are you willing to die for Christ this morning? I know we all want to say yes. We would be. But Dana clipped a quote out of the Lifelines a couple years ago that I really like. It's called, What Are Martyrs Made Of? by John Tillotson. In vain does a man pretend that he will be a martyr for his religion when he will not rule his appetite, nor restrain a lust, nor subdue a passion, nor cross his covetousness and ambition for the sake of it, and for the hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie hath promised. He that refuses to do the lesser is not likely to do the greater. If we're not willing to suffer in the little things, we're not likely to be willing to suffer in the big things. And what is the purpose? Verse 2. The purpose is that we no longer should live the rest of our time in the flesh to the lusts of men to fulfill those lusts, but to the will of God. To live out the will of God in our lives. And we can look back and see in in our past life that we fulfilled those things. Verse 3. We did those things. There were times when we lived selfishly. And we see others who are doing that. And they think it's strange that we don't live that way. When you're talking about this very concept in Sunday school class, men's Sunday school class this morning, they think it's strange and they speak evil of you. They're going to say things that aren't true about you because they don't understand your motivation for the way you live. They don't understand why you live the way you do. They don't understand that you've received life from God and that that's part of motivating force in your life. And so they speak evil of you. And those same people will give account to him that's ready to judge the quick and the dead. And then verse 6, thinking about in the context here of Gentiles or those who are unbelievers, it's easily understood as that the Gospel is preached to those who are spiritually dead. And that's something we know. And when the Gospel is preached to those who are spiritually dead, that it can open the door for them to experience life. And that's one of the things that I forgot to mention earlier when I, was, when I read verse 19 and verses 5 and 6. Um, the word preached in verse 19 means to like proclaim a message of truth. But when it's talking about the gospel being preached in verse 6, it's talking about the good news. So it's two different things it's talking about there. And another thing that I noticed as I was studying, I'm going to have to go back to my... Oh yeah, I know what it was. In verse 5 and verse 6, it also uses the term dead. And I thought, well, I wonder how this is used throughout the New Testament. Well, that word dead can mean either the physically dead or the spiritually dead. It's used both ways in the New Testament. That didn't give me any real sense of of thought there other than I believe that verse 6 is very easily understood as being the gospel being preached to them 
who are spiritually dead. And we know that's a fact. That they might live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. It's saying the time is short. The end of all things is at hand. The end is nearby. What are we to do? We're to be something. We're to be sober. And that word for sober there means self-controlled and moderate. To curb one's passions. It's just what we were talking about up in verse 1. And then the second word, to watch, is a very similar word, which can also mean sober. But it's talking about being collected in spirit. So we're to be controlled and moderate to curb our passions and to be collected and ready for prayer. Prayer, spiritual engagement. And then verse 8, have fervent agape. Have fervent charity. Same word it's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Self-sacrificing love for each other. And there's an interesting phrase in verse 8. It says, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. And I was thinking about that. Thinking about what does that mean exactly? And you got to thinking about our immune system. In our immune system, there's a little cell called a lymphocyte. And it swims around inside of our, uh, or amongst our red blood cells. And it cleans up bacteria and impurities that are in with our blood cells. And it, it actually can even show intelligence. Like it'll get a signal and it'll change directions to go after something that's close by to get it. And when it encounters this impurity or this bacteria or whatever it's, it wants to destroy, it like wraps itself around it and separates it from the other cells and breaks it down and destroys it. It can even destroy cancerous cells as well. And so their encouragement to you if you don't want to get cancer is to drink lots of fluids because these little things swim around in water and eat healthily to boost this immunity because that those little cancer cells, if they aren't overcome by that those lymphocytes in your body, they're going to spray it and eventually destroy your health and destroy you. Well, sin is like a bad bacteria in our relationships and in our life and in our church. And love is like this little lymphocyte cell. It wraps itself around that sin and dissolves it and covers those or gets rid of those harmful effects that that bacteria would have on your body.
Now that doesn't mean that sin doesn't need to be taken care of. It doesn't say that it eliminates the need for us to make correction, to make sin right. But what it means is that it covers the damaging effect of sin and gives us opportunity to make those things right without destroying us. And the reality is that we are all human and we sometimes fail despite our best efforts and we sometimes sin against one, one another. And fervent charity among ourselves, fervent love for one another gives us the opportunity to survive without the harmful effects of that sin breaking us down and breaking down our health and our lives and our church. We're thinking about the Christian as a soldier engaging in spiritual warfare. And we're thinking about the body of Christ, our comrades in this battle, and some of the most heroic acts of recognized acts of, of heroism have been on the battlefield, a soldier for his comrades. Is that the kind of love that we have for one another in the church? Where we're willing to suffer. You see, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, it's a lot of suffering in that passage that you're willing to go to to express love for that person. You suffer long and are kind. Is that our mindset in relation to our brothers and sisters in the church? and our other relationships. We're willing to suffer. Most of all, is it our mindset in relation to Christ? As He suffered for us, we are willing to suffer for His sake. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I was reading some emails last week and a brother wrote this in relation to someone he was talking with who's in spiritual bondage. And I'd like for us to think about this though in the context of Christian warfare, which is spiritual battle. This deliverance work is very stressful and exhausting. It is often accompanied with much uncertainty about what is really taking place at the moment. But it is a work that must be done at times. From my experience, I do think there is a place for some instruction on spiritual warfare in the realm of the demonic. But I also think that we, as men of God in whom the Spirit of God dwells, already largely have the resources necessary if we would just plug in and allow God to work. So he's talking about our engagement. So now let's think about our engagement in the battle. Spiritual warfare. In many cases, it seems to me that we do not need more training, but more straining. More exertion, more availability to God. More willingness to put ourselves at risk. More humility and prayer and perseverance in the battle. And more trust in the Almighty God who promises to provide our every need in Christ Jesus. We need to put our shoulder to the proverbial wheel 
and recognize that within our local churches we have more resources than we often realize. We need to claim the promise that God has placed every member in the body as it pleases Him. And we need to humbly and yet confidently move into Satan's realm, engaging the battle and allowing the one who is the indwelling greater to be the ultimate victor. May the Lord bless us as we engage in the battle for the kingdom of Jesus Christ.